Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So good morning. My name is Drew Bennett, uh, one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, thanks for bearing with the heat with us. Uh, just remember, it's not as hot in here as it is outside. And uh, I, I left my Pentecostal preacher sweat rag at home. And so just bear with me as I probably wipe sweat off my forehead. Actually, it is much cooler up to this up, up here. So sit close to the stage is the lesson this morning, which we'd love for you to do, particularly as we go to two services next week. Uh, we continue this morning in a, in a series we've been doing all summer. This is actually the last Sunday that we'll do this. We've been talking about what it means to live from the inside out, as you see on the graphic behind me rather than from the, uh, the outside in. And the story in the back of my mind, as we've done this week after week, is Jesus and the disciples on the boat in the midst of the storm. It's in all of the Gospels, which is a unique thing. Not many of the stories are in all four Gospels. Uh, but it's a really a story of contrast because you see there Jesus' disciples, the storm comes up and what happens to them is they experience the storm and the storm comes into their life and they begin to get stormy on the inside and full of fear and anxiety. And they wake him up and they say, do you care that we're going to perish? And, and they just begin to fall apart. And so that's, that's an example of what I mean from the outside in. Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus is asleep in the midst of the storm because he's so at peace and so sure of his father's love for him. And then out of that inner calm and inner peace and inner tranquility, he stands and he speaks. And as he speaks, the storm itself becomes still. And so the promise of the scriptures is, is that we can be people because of the work that God's doing by the divine power that's been given to us. Uh, we can be people who live like Jesus and not like those disciples. Now, what we've done is we've looked at this passage from 2 Peter verse 1. 1 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 8, uh, and then we've been jumping from there to other passages as we are one by one taking the characteristics that, that Peter shows us here. Uh, this morning, love, we're going to talk about love, and so we're going to 1 John chapter 3 and, verse John, and 1 John chapter 4, and so we're going to read all of those scriptures together this morning, if you would, um, with me, and then we'll come uh, to, the, to, this, to the message this morning. So let's look at one more time at 2 Peter chapter 1, which is... Uh, which is Peter's description of this kind of life, this inside-out kind of life. If you have the right stuff on the inside, then it, then it will begin to make you fruitful and effective in everything you do. That's the promise here. So let's read these verses again, beginning in verse 3. Uh, this is God's word. Listen to it. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious promise and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And so we've been looking at each of those every week in this morning love because he says for if these qualities are yours and are increasing they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and because our topic is love this morning John is really the apostle that talks about love more than any of others and in his uh, letters to the churches first John chapter 3 verses 14 through 20 we read this John writes for we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 
Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. And John goes on in the next chapter, beginning in verse 7. To say this, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, beloved. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is God's word. Now think about that passage in Peter with me for just a minute. Can you imagine a person like the one Peter's describing there with faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness, but without brotherly affection and love? I've known people like that in my life. I've been that person at times. But what you have there in Peter is faith and virtue and knowledge and so forth. When it is combined with brotherly affection and love, it's a supernatural combination that creates a supernatural effect in a person's life that has a supernatural effect upon that person's people and places. And so that's why we want to finish this morning with talking about love and why I'm glad Peter includes it in the qualities that he says, if you have these things and they're increasing, then it'll keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in everything you do. Because often, often the key to change in a person's life is love. We are most severely broken in the places where the people with whom we should have been safe failed to love us. And that's true of every single one of us in the room. And if it's true, then the way we get put back together is by finding the love that we've been missing to heal that broken part of our life. Ultimately, we mean by that the perfect love of God for us in Christ, of course, but the way most of us come to know his love is by experiencing, experiencing it first in the love of a friend or family or church or whatever the case might be. And so I've started using this phrase uh, to describe the work that we should be engaged in as a church. If you want to call it our mission statement, it would be that we should be loving people and places to life with gospel words and gospel works. That's what we've been put in this city to do. It's what we've been put in this world to do, to love people and place, places to life with gospel works and gospel words because people change as they're loved. And in the Bible... Truth and love are always put side by side because truth without love has no effect. It is an atmosphere of love that allows people to wrestle with the truth. And so the Bible also says that kindness is actually what leads people to repentance. So in other words, when somebody is stuck in a destructive, sinful pattern of behavior, the shock to the system that they need to get unstuck is kindness. 
that forces them to reckon with their own ugliness. You know, we read in the Bible, the word became flesh. In other words, truth is a person. And think about that for just a minute. The the word still must become flesh, especially today in the culture we live in. People don't respond to the truth in the abstract. They respond to people who embody the truth and live with such a beautiful aesthetic in their lives that they cannot be ignored. It's truth within a relationship characterized by kindness that leads to change. And so we have to talk about love because the work that God has given us to do is this work of love. But you see here, John writes a lot about that in these passages in 1 John chapter 3 and 4. We want to see three things just really quickly from these from these, uh, these verses here in these two chapters. And we want to see, John says three things about love. He says a lot, but we'll focus on these three anyway. He says that there's a test. Love provides a test. That There's the test of love. There's also the shape of love, which he shows us. And then thirdly, thankfully, he doesn't leave us without showing us the power for love as well. And so you'll see those are the three points of the outline I've given you. It's on the insert in your worship folder for you so you can follow along. But we want to look at these three things, the test of love and the shape of love and the power of love as we become people who seek to love one another as we've been loved by God in Christ. So let's walk through this together. First, the test of love. First John is, is really great. Uh, but if you're unfamiliar with it, but it's really, really hard. It's probably the most direct black and white teaching in the New Testament because John's dealing with a very specific problem, but it can be very hard to read. In fact, uh, I almost lost my faith in college uh, because I read First John and didn't understand what he was saying because he's just so direct. He's just so black and white. He just, he just really gets right to the thing. There were people leaving the church and believing other things, and it caused a great deal of confusion for those Christians who stayed and remained in the church. So John is writing in many ways to say, this is how you know if your faith is real or not. That's really what the, the, the book is about. This is how you know if you're, if you're a genuine believer and follower of Jesus or not. So he says, for example, in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants us to know. He wants us to be certain about who Jesus was and whether or not we genuinely believe in him. And so the very first thing to ask is, is this, I think. Do you ever have doubts about whether you really believe? Do you ever say, you know, man, do I really believe this stuff? And is my life really in alignment with what I say I believe? Well, John assumes that you would ask questions like that. It's not a negative thing. It doesn't signal a lack of faith. Overconfidence is a far more dangerous spiritual reality, presumption is, than, than questioning things. So the Bible encourages us to put our faith to the test. And sometimes when you do that, you, you know, you, you're not sure. You read First Peter I mean, excuse me, 2 Peter 1, like we've been doing every week now, and it says you're a partaker of the divine nature and your life should be full of faith and virtue and self-control and, and all of these things. And you, you have a moment of honesty and you say, I don't see any of that in me. A partaker of the divine nature? I barely got out of bed and got cereal in the bowl this morning. And you stop and you think, is that true of me? And it's hard, you know? But this is how John put it. He said, chapter 3, verse 20, if you look there, he said, whenever our hearts condemn us. See, he goes at that, that experience I just tried to describe. In other words, 
Faith and assurance are not the same thing. You can have faith, but not assurance. You can believe God, but still struggle with anxiety because you're not sure of his heart for you. You can say you have faith and then play it safe your whole life, which is sin according to the parable of the talents, at least, because you're not confident God's generous and kind, Deuteronomy chapter one this past week. You can know the gospel and still feel guilty and condemned by your sin. That's what John writes here, because there's a part of you that is still not sure that Jesus is enough. And so Peter, for example, if we were to go on down uh, the page in that passage in 2 Peter 1, at the end he says this. He says, therefore, brothers, in light of everything I've said, be eager to make your calling and election sure, he says. You need to know for sure. Assurance is not the essence of faith, but it is the goal. In fact, the real work that we do as Christians is to constantly be reassuring our hearts about the things that we believe. That's 1 John 3, 19. Uh, in John 6, the crowds asked Jesus this question. They said, what do we have to do to be doing the work of God? And Jesus' answer is brilliant. He doesn't tell them, you know, what, how, I want, how would you answer that question? We could come up with lots of things, couldn't we? But here was Jesus' answer. Here's, what, here's the work of God. Here's what you must do to be doing the work of God. Believe in me. That's all he says. Because faith fuels every other kind of obedience. And so if you're struggling in some area, chances are what you need is a greater faith. You need a deeper confidence and assurance of the truth of the things you say you believe. But maybe only, because you, maybe only you believe half-heartedly. You need to know the truth. Or as John put it here, look at verse 19, you need to know that you are of the truth. You see that? It's a strange grammatical construct there in the original language. It means that you exist from or outside or out of the truth. Your life is happening out of what you know to be the truth, John says. If you're of the truth, that's the case. What you do is being shaped by what you believe. And so, how do you know if you're of the truth? How do you reassure your heart when it condemns you? How do you make your calling and election sure? Now, I warned you about how direct John can be, okay? So here we go. You ready? This is where it gets hard. This is where I almost lost my faith. Look at verse 19 again. He says, by this we shall know that we're of the truth. Well, by what? Well, it's either what he's about to say or what he's just said. And if you read it carefully, you see he's, he's referring to what he's just said in the previous verses. So you got to look back. And here's the, the argument John makes. He, he says it this way. He says, the way you know that you really are a Christian, the test that determines whether or not you really believe is love. Do you love because if you love, then you can know you're of the truth. If you don't love, then you're not of the truth. Black and white, classic John. He says it even more directly than that. Uh, if you go back up to verse 14 of chapter three, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. But whoever does not love abides still in death. That's not the only place though in John First uh, John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Do you see how black and white? I mean, it's just direct, classic, classic John. Now, let's unpack all of that for just a minute. And the first thing to notice there is that a Christian is more than just a good person. Christianity is supernaturalism. It's not just a moral code. Uh, look at the language John uses there. He describes a person passing out of death into life or being born of God. So the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel spoke the new covenant promise 
of new hearts given to God's people and a new spirit put inside of them to move them to obey all that God had commanded of them. And Jesus, speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, called that reality Ezekiel spoke of being born again. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the Bible doesn't say to you, look, there are a few things that you need to clean up in your life. I got to tell you, it's much worse than that. The Bible says you're spiritually in the grave. You're flatlined. But when you believe, it's not just a good person becoming, I mean, it's not, not just a bad person becoming a good person. When you believe, what's happening is a dead person is coming alive. And what's the evidence of that new life? What's, what's the sign that, there, that this new heart has been jump-started into beating inside of, of your life again. John says simply, what? Love. Because God is love. You see that? It's not God does love. Love is not what God does. It's what he is. So anyone who is of God is like him, and he is love. Anyone who is of God loves. That's the test. Now, this is hard, okay? And it's a bit different than what you normally hear from me. Uh, and I realize that. So let me say again, when John says, when your heart is condemning you, the way you reassure yourself that, you're re that you really do belong to him is not to say, well, you know, I walked an aisle. I prayed a prayer. Well, you know, I'm a pretty good person. No, what you do when your heart's condemning you, the way you reassure yourself that you really do belong for him, to him is you look for love. Because that is the evidence that you truly have believed and passed from life to death. Now, that doesn't mean you love perfectly. That's not the standard. But it means that you sense that the natural flow of your life has been reversed. We are naturally prideful and selfish and self-justifying and critical of others. We are supernaturally self-forgetful and kind and courageous with the truth. Now, the question is not which are you. See, that's too... That's too uh, one-dimensional. The question is, which are you becoming? What's the what, what, what defines the trajectory your life is on? Are you becoming more and more naturally self-centered and contemptuous of others and hardened in your heart? Or are you becoming more and more supernaturally compassionate and forgiving and bold, even if you're just creeping along? Do you see? Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith, the Apostle Paul writes elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 13. Test yourself, he said, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Now let me restate what I've said. The test is not, do you love? The test is, is Christ in you? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. And guess what? If Christ is in you, you will love. Now that begs the question, what does the Bible mean by love then? And so we come to the second thing here, because so much of the conflict in our culture is over semantics. Do you realize that? We can't, dis the whole problem with our political system, with the way we do everything in our culture is that we can't even agree upon what words mean anymore. I say this word and you say this word, and it's the same word, but we mean two completely different things by it. And that is true in spades about this word love. Our cultural definitions of love are far too sentimental 
and unhelpful. They don't have the grit to carry us through the real world. So second is the shape of love. Because what we're given here is not so much a definition. We're given an image by John. So twice, John says, this is love. And then he gives us a description. So he helps us. He defines it for us here. And the first is in 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love. This is love. That he laid down his life for us. And again, 1 John 4, 10. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so the problem with the way our culture conceives of love is that it's out of touch with reality. Our definitions are too naive. Excuse me, sentimentalism, Flannery O'Connor said, is wanting the happily ever after without the struggle that necessarily comes first. But there is no such thing, not in a fallen world, not in a fallen world. Christian theology teaches that mankind is sinful. And today, do we need, do we need any more evidence of that? On a day like today, after a day like yesterday? Martin Luther described this sinful condition that is true of every single one of us with the phrase incurvitus in se. It's a Latin phrase that means man is curved in on himself. We are all fundamentally self-centered. We are driven by, often unconsciously, self-interest and parasitism in our relationships. Even when we're trying to serve God and others, it's admired in our own needs and insecurities. And often what we're really doing is trying to prove something to him, trying to prove and feel superior to other people, because in everything we do all the time, the bent of our heart is you for me. Write that down somewhere, because that is true of every one of us. You for me. You exist for me. You're there for for my benefit. You're there to serve me. Now, here's what happens. If that's true of every single one of us, let's, let's just do an experiment for a minute. Put two people together in marriage both of them fundamentally committed and actually enslaved, the Bible says, to a you-for-me way of life. And what do you get? You get marriage. You with me? Conflict in marriage doesn't mean something wrong, something's wrong. It means it's marriage. Now, again, these are, I'm, you know, don't take that too far. Sometimes really terrible things happen. But just garden variety marriage. What's happening is your you-for-me commitments are being challenged by their you-for-me approach, which is why it's so hard. Now, think about this. Put 300 people together in a church, and all of them, even the pastors, detoxing from the you-for-me lifestyle, being rescued but not there yet. What do you get? You get church. You thought marriage was hard. So the only way to love in a fallen world that is full of people that are characterized this way is with a cross. And that's what these two verses from John teach us. This is love, he says, and both times he talks about the cross. And so if you want to know what love looks like, look at the cross. God's love for sinners took the shape of a cross because there's only one way to love sinners. In marriage, in friendship, in the church, Hallmark card sentimentality isn't enough. You have to take up your cross. And cross-shaped love is the opposite of what comes natural to us. It is a supernatural me for you. So write that down somewhere. Me for you. And so you see this language uh, that John uses here. By this we know love, verse 16 of chapter 3, that he laid down his life for us. Circle that word for. And we ought to also lay down our lives for the brothers. 
God for me. You see that? God for me. That's what that means there. Me for you. Again, in this is love. God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Circle that four again in 1 John 4.10. So it's the language of substitution there. Jesus died in our place. The wrath of God was justly coming against our sins, but Jesus died as a propitiation for our sins. He died to satisfy the wrath of God for us in our place. We deserve death and curse. He deserved blessing and life. And on the cross, he took upon himself our curse and died so that we might live. That's the gospel. And every act of love in a fallen world full of sinners like you and me whose hearts are curved in on themselves, is a rehearsal of the cross. It has a cross shape to it. So every act of love is me for you, which means someone dies so that the other person can live. Now, I, you know, we could be here all day uh, giving illustrations of how this is the case. I mean, we could go into classical literature, we could go into pop culture, and I really struggle to know which one, you know, to do here as an illustration of this. So I could use... Uh, for the English literature majors in the room, Sidney and Charles in A Tale of Two Cities who look very much alike and who love the same woman, Lucy. Lucy marries Charles, but during the French Revolution, Charles is arrested and sentenced to death. But on the night before his execution, Sidney smuggles himself into Charles' prison cell, knocks him unconscious, and trades places with him out of love for his friend and the woman that he loves so that he might die in his place for their future happiness together. It's a gospel story, but if you're not into classical literature, I could use Joey and Chandler in a Friends episode I, wa- I watched recently. It's going off Netflix, guys. You got to get it all in between, between here and the end of the year. Who, in a strange echo of that Dickens tale, love the same woman, but she's with Joey. And if you remember this one, it's her birthday, and they both get her gifts. Chandler, who really is in love with her, gets her a first edition copy of her favorite children's book. I mean, it's just this expensive and thoughtful and perfect gift. And Joey, last minute, runs out and gets her a pen that's also a clock. And uh, so Chandler knows that he's in trouble, that he's going to give this superior gift, and it's a problem. And so in the story, he gives Joey his gift to give to her. And then Joey throws him under the bus later by telling her the pen is from him. And you can just see it. It's a death. You with me? It's just a death. Now, I have lots of my own stories, but probably my favorite (laughs) that just is a good reminder to me. We went to the mountains this year, and I was reminded of a trip we took years ago where we went up to Bryson City, North Carolina, and went tubing down the uh, Deep Creek area there. And they warned us that it was treacherous, and Abby was very young at the time. I don't remember how old exactly, but... And so we were a little worried about her, and so I did the, this parenting mistake of tying her raft to my raft so I could just keep track of her the whole way down. It was awesome. It really, it, some, some rivers you go down, you know, are pretty, just pretty easy. This one had waterfalls and stuff, and I, uh, I, I, I was bloody and beaten. I lost my sunglasses. I spent most of the trip in the water. I felt, literally when we got down, I felt like I had been stoned. And my favorite part was we got down to the bottom, Ashley was not with us, we got down to the bottom and Abby was so excited when she saw her, she's like, mommy, I stayed dry the whole time. I didn't fall in the river once. And here I am like, you know, you can just imagine me like walking up. She stayed dry because I spent the whole trip in the river. 
She was unscathed because I about lost my life four or five times. But isn't that parenting? Isn't that love? You know, the Bible says, by his wounds, we're healed. I mean, my daughter was literally whole because of my wounds. I mean, it's true of the love of God for us, and Jesus is true of the love that we have for one another as well. Because love has this cross shape to it. Now, before we move on, just a few pieces of practical advice from these verses. And apply this to whatever relationships you would. But you see a number of things about love here. We're told first that it, the cross-shaped love is theological. First John 4, 7, love is from God. So one of the things that I remind myself of all the time is it takes three people to love. You and the other person and him. We read, we read John 15 again on Friday. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus said, and that includes love. Now, we're going to get back to that in just a minute, so hang in there. But second, second cross-shaped love is incarnational. Look at verse 17 of chapter 3. If anyone sees a brother in need yet closes his heart to him, how does God's love abide in him? So when you get close to someone and you really get to know them, you begin to see more and more of their you-for-me tendencies. It's what makes marriage and uh, friendship so hard. And it's hard not to begin to feel hurt and used and unloved and to become hard-hearted. C.S. Lewis said the hardest part of love is to remain vulnerable and to not, to not lock up your heart to keep it safe because there's so much pain. And he said, you know, you can live with a broken heart or you can live with an unbreakable heart, but those are the only two options. And it's funny, the word for Greek there in that, in that verse where it says don't close your heart the word for heart is not even used there. It's the word for gut. It's the word for feelings. It means don't become, don't allow yourself to become unfeeling toward one another. Because love incarnates. It gets into the other person's experiences and sees things from their perspective. It sees the other person's needs and responds compassionately. That's the supernatural part. Even towards their sins. Even towards the place where they've, they've done a lot of damage and they've really hurt you. Now I'm going to say something really hard and really direct. And it probably needs more nuance, but honestly, I don't have time for that this morning, and it's hot in here, so we got to be done. But here's the thing. If you've become hard-hearted in a relationship, it's probably because you sense more me for you than you for me from the other person, and you're weary of the unevenness of how things feel. But here's the thing. The problem is, is that the hurt... And the, and the wounds and the pains that cause you to close your heart off, that's a you for me thing too. Your you for me demands aren't being met, so you stop caring because that hurts less. It's so much easier to live with an unbreakable heart than to continue to live with a broken heart. But there's only one way to love, and that's that it's incarnational. Third, Cross-shaped love is not only theological and incarnational, it's practical. Love meets physical needs. You see that in that verse 17 again. It uses whatever material resources it has to provide for those who are without. If we plant churches, um, but we don't help the homeless population in Winter Haven, we cannot say we've loved the city. And then fourth, it's all of those things, but it's also intentional. Look at verse 18 of chapter 4. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And I'm really intrigued by that verse. I was confronted uh, by a friend this week about how I'm, I might sometimes be guilty of doing just that. And what it means is this, is that love, love has to be just more than talk. It has to be 
first genuine, sincere, and it has to be action-oriented because that's, that's the way that God has loved us. But let's finish this up this morning and just say, so how do you, how do, you do this? Where does the power for this come from? Because this is, this is hard stuff here, right? And listen, I have good news. And the good news is, is that the power doesn't come from you. Love is from God, 1 John 4, 7, the text says. You don't look, for, you don't look within for the power to live a me-for-you life. I have more good news. The power also doesn't come from the love of others. And that's the mistake that we make. If you love somebody because they love you, then you only love them as long as they love you well. But you see, that's a you-for-me approach again. You love me. As long as you're loving me, you know, according to my standards, then I'll return that love to you. But if you stop loving me, then what happens is, is the source of my love is gone, and so the power gets cut off, and that's the problem. As they say, God is love, but love is not God. If you source your life in your wife's love, or in your kid's love, or in a friend's love, be careful that you're not creating an idol. Because love between people in marriage or parents and children or between friends is not pure enough and it's not constant enough to give you life because we're all sinners, remember. And so if you've closed your heart, listen, I really believe this. If you've closed your heart against someone, give this some thought. Is it because at one time you made their love God in your life? And they've let you down. A lot of the times I think that's true. No, the power to love doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from them. The power to love comes from being loved by God. 1 John 4, 19, which I didn't print, but it's down there in the passage. We love because he first loved us. John says later, uh, later there, but he says love for one another is first a love for God. But our love for God is unlocked by the knowing of his love for us. This is love, he says, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. So God's love always comes first. By the way, that's why if you're gonna make it in marriage, date night, this is, this, this is the most pastor thing to say, but I gotta say it, okay? But if you're gonna make it in marriage, date nights are really important, but you wanna know what's even more important? Worship on Sunday morning. Because it's here that you plug your life into God's love, which is the secret of a success in marriage. See, most people imagine God to be you for me toward mankind. The gods of all the other religions are. When we think about Islam, you serve Allah, and if you're worthy, you get paradise. There's no love. There's no compassionate heart in Allah. It's no different in moralistic Christianity, though. So much of Christianity says you serve God, you sacrifice for him, you slave away, and maybe he'll give you a good life. I mean, that's what the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son believed, isn't it? But that's not Christianity. That's just religion. Christianity is gospel, and the gospel is that God loves you and me with a me-for-you love in Jesus. And I want you to really think about that. Jesus said, I did not come to, serve, to be served, but to serve. And he gave his life for you his death for your life. And the text says that when our hearts condemn us, we remember that God is greater than our hearts, verse 20, and he knows everything. And here's what that means, that God's, here's the good news, God's heart for you is greater than your heart for you. 
And when you sin, your heart might condemn you, but his doesn't. God doesn't condemn you in your sin. He died for you in your sin. So whatever ugliness you see in yourself, I got really great news. It's just the tip of the iceberg. But he sees all the way to the bottom. He sees all the parts that you keep hidden, even from yourself, and he loves you. Even all the ugly parts. And that love, that love when it really comes home to your heart is the love that can supernaturally change you. Now one last thing. The Christian gospel is that Jesus died and was raised on the third day. Don't forget, we've talked about the cross, but let's not forget the resurrection. And his resurrection means that every death you die when you love others will end in resurrection too. That's the promise of the Bible. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? And so if you feel like you're on life support this morning, don't forget, there's resurrection power. There's resurrection power for your friendships. There's resurrection power for your kids, for your marriage, whatever the case might be. But not until you take up your cross to love. Do you love to get love from others? Or to be lovely? Or do you love because you've been loved? See, it's the second where the power comes from, which is why I'm so, so glad we get to come to this table this morning to be reminded of just that. So would you pray with me as we prepare for this meal? So Father, we need our lives to be full of your love as the power source for the love that we have for one another. And so come in these last moments now as we gather around this meal, our hearts are so prone toward unbelief. We hear the good news of the gospel and we say that can't be true. And so in your goodness and grace to us, you've taken those words and you've made them visible in this meal. And so we come and celebrate and remember your body broken and your blood shed for us. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief and use this meal to do just that, we pray. Now in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So it is... Uh, our tradition on Communion Sundays to also take a mercy offering. The way we're going to do that today is there'll be men at the doors as you leave. Or there are offering boxes. You could put uh, your gift in there as long as you designate it towards that. But the men will be there to take the mercy offering. We do that uh, as a way of living, uh, a, uh, a me-for-you way of life towards our city. All of the monies collected uh, go to caring for the needs, both in our church and in our city as well. Okay? So just know that those men will be there as you leave. Um, now... I don't take lightly the words of that song. It is, it, is a, it is a hard thing to sing those words, to take up your cross, because a cross is a, is a difficult thing to bear. And I was struck, we're reading the Bible together as a church, and we read Psalm 31 yesterday, and thinking about the sermon this morning, it just caught me that um, when Jesus endured his cross uh, in a, in, on the most horrible, uh, dark, soul-crushing day, in the history of mankind, his, the, the way he endured was to turn his heart towards his father's love. And we know he did that because he started to quote from the Psalms. And one of the Psalms he quoted from on the cross is Psalm 31. And so just here again, here some of the, here's, here's the Psalm he was meditating on. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. For you are my rock and my fortress, and into your hands I commit my spirit. And it goes on, oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you. Love the Lord, all his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful. Be strong. 
Let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. You see, you turn your heart toward God and his love for you and the confidence of that, and that's what gives you the power to go in love. That's what these words mean. So he doesn't send you out to say, love, and maybe I'll love you. He says, oh, I've lavished you with love. Now go and find some place to put that love. But be mindful always of the way that I've loved you. That's what these words mean. Receive them. May the Lord bless you, and may he keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you as you do this work and give you peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. God bless you.